Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. It is a wonderful day to be on radio because we've got one of our great colleagues and we're going to give you some good news about today. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Lyndon. How are you going, madam? I'm great. Thanks, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm pretty good. Dr. Ray is to my left. Not that anyone can see that, but uh, it's important. Hi, Dr. Shane. Are you well? I am. I spent all of last week showing people us dancing on Twitter from oh, the Radiothon. God. And, you know, that's, that's what it scary. looks like when scientists let loose. Uh, <laughs> Imagine if was... there'd been alcohol involved. <laughs> there was chocolate. That's... There was a lot of yeah. chocolate. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a big week. Uh, in fact, uh, we should mention um, that people, you can still subscribe, like, uh, all through the month. So if you haven't managed to do it during the sort of more active part of Radiothon, you can do it now. Um, you can do it on the web right now if you like. And we'll even, I might even get a chance to read out your name if you do it. So to do that on the web, you go to rrr.org. .au. More or less. Okay. That'll do it. Uh, and also in the studio is Dr. Laura. How are you going, madam? I'm pretty good, thanks, Shane. You've how had you? a pretty big week. It's been a pretty good week. Yeah. Something happened. Something happened. We're going to get back to that in a moment. <laughs> let's, let's do some news first. Dr. Lyndon, what have you got for us? Well, all news is going to be boring news compared to the exciting news that we've got to share a bit later on. But the news that I read this week kind of got me thinking, and I wondered if you could have a think about it as well. What do you think would happen if all of us, everybody, all the hosts on uh, Einstein and Gogo, and all of the guests that we have this year and our families, moved to a tropical island? We were cut off from everyone. We'd be a lot more relaxed. Forever. We'd be a lot more relaxed. <laughs> well, well, hang on, because my question is, do we have a potable water supply? Then I'll be relaxed. Yes, Otherwise, we have okay. a potable <laughs> water supply. What do you think would happen to our descendants? Say we just lived there for years and years, decades and decades, centuries, thousands of years. What do you think our descendants would look like? Does it mean I'm dark if my mind goes straight to there wouldn't be any because it would be a Lord of the Flies situation? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm no. chucking Laura in the pit immediately. <laughs> well, uh, this hypothetical is not very well. I, I was thinking enough crossbreeding in Dr. Shane's early hair loss would be lost. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, we would hopefully have hair. Uh, our descendants would hopefully have hair. And also, they might actually be smaller. Right, there's this theory that exists when it comes to ecogeography and sort of uh, evolutionary biology that is the island effect or the island rule that if a species lives on an island, they can get bigger or smaller. It's seen in mammals, it's seen in birds, and it has been seen in some humans. And a study this week that came out of researchers from ANU have dated, found and dated two skulls on an island, the island of Alor, which is just an Indonesian island off the northwest coast of East Timor. And these two skulls are fascinating because they are the oldest skulls that have been found in that region. They're 12,000 to 17,000 years old. And they tell us more about how migrations of humans have occurred in our part of the world. And also, they are smaller than any other skulls that have been found in our area at Hmm. that same time. How do they know they just weren't two people with relatively small heads? Well, they've Good dated point. them. They're like 45 to 55 years old, and uh, there was a man and a woman, and one of them was sort of buried with stuff, so they were probably important, and the other one wasn't. So I think they're pretty... Well, I guess that's your right. There's only two skulls. Yeah. They often have small sample sizes of these kind I of like studies that. anyway. Buried with stuff. Maybe it's the old version of a hoarder. 
You know, like just, <laughs> no, I want my stuff. I want to be very good with my stuff. Yeah, you know. Maybe that was important back then. But no, these, they seem to think that this might be another example of this kind of island effect where mm. these guys evolved to be smaller. They were cut off from everything else. And one of the theories is that, oh, you, you evolved to become smaller because there aren't as many resources around. There's not as much food. So the body just makes itself smaller so it can survive. But in this case, they were also buried with lots of bones or there were lots of fish bones that were found with yeah. these skulls. So they're like, no, oh, it can't be that and the theory that these scientists have is that the skulls were smaller and the, these humans were smaller because they didn't need to be any bigger yeah. there wasn't any com- competition there weren't any predators so this little community lived on this island in part of our story of how humans migrated around the place and they kind of evolved to be a little bit smaller and this is fascinating like most lots of areas of science a lot of it is done in yeah. Europe and the northern hemisphere so any extra pieces of this puzzle that we can find really to understand cool. how we've migrated around our part of the world is really valuable so go <laughs> researchers at ANU Fun. And as the self-appointed leader of this island, I would, I would, I said self-appointed. I'd make everyone do diving, like diving for food, because then they would develop greater lung capacity, and we'd oh. we'd all be amazing at that. And then when people like tried to invade us, we'd just all dive. And we'd be cool. <laughs> Aqua people. There, well, there are people around the world, certain cultures that have greater capacity for for free diving as a result of their fishing cultures. It's really interesting. Yeah, so this would be a fun those, experiment. Yeah, be a Bring fun experiment. All those scientists to the same island, maybe it would be yeah, a I great reality TV. I think yeah, yeah, they don't kill each other. If we're all scientists, wouldn't we have lousy eyesight to start? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah probably. Bad facts. Yeah, there'd be, mm. there'd be someone building an aquifer inside <laughs> of five minutes. That'd be a problem. Dr. Laura, some news for us. What do you got? Well, an article that I read was about the use of virtual reality for pain management in hospitalised patients. Mm. And when I first kind of read about this, I was a little bit sceptical about whether that would actually work, you know, playing sort of a computer game or immersing yourself in virtual reality for pain management. But as I read into it, um, the data was actually pretty good. And it actually seems like this you know, actually might be sort of like a viable option for reducing pain. So the use of virtual reality or VR is not new, and it's actually being used in several hospitals in the States already, such as Seattle, New York, L.A. Did did people know this apart from me? Because I didn't know this. But I know there's an Australian company from an Australian invention called SmileyScope, which is a virtual reality, basically Google Glasses for kids to help manage injections. Yeah. And, and that was all developed, actually, a lot of that in Victoria. Do you mean manage injections or kind of distract? No, no, no. no. It's, 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 it's distraction. It's distraction, but the, 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 the virtual reality is timed with the different stages of the injection. So there's, there's like waves or something or wind when they're doing the thing with the alcohol to clean your arm. And then I forgot what the image was when you actually get the, the needle prick. And, and so it, it helps kids manage through the, the process of a, of a needle injection. And it's all VR. Yeah, so because humans have limited sort of attentional resources, if you get people to immerse in in a complete, if you completely distract them um, and sort of, you know, get their brain to think about something else, yeah, this is what I read as well, injections for kids, they're using it for to manage anxieties, phobia, and in hospitals in the US, they're also using um, VR for burn patients. Mm. So when you're changing the wounds, which can be incredibly, um, you know, just as painful as when you're kind of getting burnt, when you're changing those wounds, people are using VR technology and it's actually working and there's an absolutely exponential number of clinical studies of vr been going on over the past few years but this study that that came out this week from the cedars side eye medical center in la this was the biggest sort of pain control yet to see whether you can use vr reality for chronic pain so in this study there was 140 people and they split these 140 people into two groups one group they had full immersive vr headsets they wore these headsets for 10 minutes three times a day and the other group they had just watching tv 
TV watching relaxation and um, sort of meditative and wellness videos. And then they monitored their pain, and pain's usually set on a pain scale of 1 to 10. And the reduction in pain of the VR group was two points, and that was statistically significant, and that's on a scale of 10, so that's actually quite a big percentage compared to a 0.5% drop of the of the group that were just watching television. Mm. So that was statistically significant. Um, they found that it was actually quite a lasting effect that would last. And so I, I don't understand how that would work. I understand that you'd be distracted at the time. You know, so for something like injections or pain management, when you're sort of undergoing a procedure such as, you know, changing the wounds on a burn, I understand that. But how it would have a lasting effect, maybe, you know, psychological or relaxation or just taking you out of the pain for a little bit of time. But, um, yeah, they, they found that it lasted um, sort of up to 72 hours, that sort of decrease in pain, which is really interesting. Mm. It probably your, your pain management skills probably change. You, yeah. yeah and and that might be something that you you learn to so you adapt to very quickly and then you know do you it, think because you have a wider range of things to draw from from that you associate with the pain and so you can escape faster or well it could be that it could very much be escapism and actually being able to you know very rapidly sort of the equivalent of meditation in a sense but in a very active fashion so you have landscapes and places you go and things you do and 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 ideas that you might have that that are very effective i mean i think this this stuff is really really valid i've I've seen a lot of people who use this sort of activity and and it seems to be really valid yeah yeah but do you think it would be it will still be valid in 20 years where it's every day do you know what i mean at the moment there are a lot of people who've never experienced virtual reality so it would be a brand new very different thing well i think i think when you say every day um what i hear more is convenience so for example if if i'm pain management um in the middle of pain management and took me into a, a snow-covered forest um that's every day but that would be that would help Mm. If I can, if I can simulate that without leaving my home, that would help. So if that became every day that I could do that, I think that, that would still be, still be useful. Uh, even probably even more so because then I just dialed up and as the quality of these things goes up. I mean, I've, I've looked at some of these virtual reality systems now. They are really full on. Like mm. they're, they're, they're pretty realistic and with, you know, better sort of visual, so the stimulation and so forth that's available in these headsets, the quality is so high, it's becoming difficult to distinguish between that and actual environments. Yeah, with the quality going up and so immersion is more, that there's more distraction, mm. it's better for pain, they're becoming cheaper now, so it's actually viable to have in yep. hospitals. If it could reduce stay, that could be very cost-effective, reducing the amount of reliance on opioids and addictive drugs. Yeah. Be I, a really I, great I actually like the fact that it puts the patient at the centre too. It says, mm. okay, the patient's experience here actually matters, yeah. which is not something that healthcare is overly good at. So this kind of does that. It puts the patient's experience right in the middle of things. Mm, so. True. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Dr. Shane, um, many of you probably remember in October last year, the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft had gone out to a near-Earth asteroid. Um, and the near-Earth asteroid is a 900-meter diameter cute little dark body called Ryuga. Right, you go. Um, and um, they are still crunching some of the data off this. And one of the things that um, the spacecraft dropped was the Mobile Asteroid Surface Scout mascot. Uh, nice, lander. nice background. Yeah, and, and it, it had like a 17-minute descent. But while they were doing that, and while it was on the asteroid, it only had a, excuse me, had a six-minute descent with a bounce. While it was on the asteroid for 17 hours, they took photos with LED lighting. And, uh, and they've actually churned through that data. And, all right, this is kind of a, just from the photos, they were able to figure out quite a lot about the rocks. Mm. Um, they were able to figure out whether or not it really had that much water content on it. Because apparently if the rocks have 
water in them. They get altered over time because of water. And what they basically found were, were two surprising things. One, even though it's a meteorite, it was not dusty. So all the really small, fine particles and rains, they didn't find on the surface. They found like gravelly rocks, but everything that was really fine grained, somehow there was a mechanism, they don't know quite what, to remove it. And the other one was that um, basically its composition looked like a crondite meteorite, that we've, which is the most common class of non-metallic meteorites that we get on Earth. Um, and they're the most primitive ones. They broke out of some part of um, a primordial material. And what's neat about those meteorites is generally... They're, they haven't gone through a lot of heat treatment. They really look like whatever they broke of a chunk off of originally. Uh, and the other thing is they said, based on the inclusions in the rock, they also thought it was carbonaceous too. And only about 5% of crondite meteorites are carbonaceous. And those are the ones that land with amino acids or organic materials and things as well. So where octopuses come from. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, thanks for that reminder. Yeah. Um, not true. That's not they're true. Weird. They're weird. Hmm. Yeah. We know that. Um, one thing I couldn't find in the paper, which it didn't mention on, on, on crondite meteorites that have landed on Earth, is they have these chondrules, which are small kind of millimeter, tens of millimeter to slightly bigger spherical rock aggregates. And they didn't mention they saw those in there as well. But hmm. uh, it was kind of interesting. They figured all that out from pictures. Yeah. They were, uh, good. They were cool pictures, too. They kind of Some of them looked like you were just looking into some cave on, on Earth. Yeah. They were kind of weird, weird and wonderful stuff. So. Are they doing any drilling as well? Uh, didn't they blow up part of it, or is that the other meteor? I'm not sure, actually. I can't remember. That one up. No, so they only, they only took pictures for 17 hours and then sent those back. So the batteries died on the, on the lander after that. So, okay. um, well, getting, I mean, these are really small craft that go out to the meteors. It's amazing they can steer them to get to those points anyway, because it's yeah. a moving target. Yeah, they're pretty but, cool. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, there was another one that I thought they actually did depth charge explosions on. Yeah, so, fired so. pellets into and stuff yeah. and watch for things to uh, come out. And then look at them in the sunlight and get uh, spectroscopic information. Interesting stuff. Uh, now then, uh, she's looking a bit sheepish over there, but we wanted to mention, folks, that one of our very own, our co-host, uh, Dr. Laura, this week was a winner in the Eureka Prizes. And this is not a small feat. Uh, the Eureka Prizes are a pretty big... Some refer to them as the Logies the of Oscars. Science. And the I think, Logies. Yeah. The Oscars. I was, well, I was about to the say... The Emmys or the off, Oscars, not the Logies. I was about to say, if you didn't cut me off, that I find that term insulting um, <laughs> because no magazine voting is involved. Uh, but they are essentially the Oscars of science here in Australia. And there's some pretty big people who've won these over the years. But this year, uh, Laura won the Macquarie University Eureka Prize for Outstanding. And she reminded me that it was in there a moment ago. Outstanding <laughs> Early Career Researcher. And uh, I thought we'd play, we're just going to play the audio from uh, her little uh, video school because you've got to submit a video school saying what you did. And this is what essentially convinces people. So I'm going to leave the mics on. So if you guys make any jokes, it's going to come out when we're doing this. So here we go. So what my research has focused on for the past decade now is how immune responses are best generated and which immune cells give us the best protection and the most long-lasting protection against infection and also in defending our bodies against cancer. Our discovery is that there's a type of immune cell which exists within tissues of the body and can't circulate or be found in the blood. And these cells can form a defensive barrier in the tissue, providing long-lasting immunity against infection and also tumors. Our hope is by studying these cells, we can generate new information that can inform new vaccines against a range of diseases. Congratulations, madam. That was an We're awesome audio clip. Oh, not, 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 not just the music. That was really great. Yeah. Oh, like, thank like, you. 
30 seconds, you know what you did, and you said what you did, and then what your discovery was, and you're like, yeah, that sounds award-winning. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Sounds outstanding. Outstanding. So you're, uh, you you went up to Sydney. You were sick as a dog cause, uh, <laughs> yeah. last week. You were sick as a dog. You still got on a plane. You went up there to, to Sydney, and um, but you didn't know, did no, you? No, you find so out in the night. It's a bit cruel. Yeah. <laughs> as awards programs go, it's yeah. a bit cruel to have you up there, because if you hadn't, I know you, you can use some bad language, and if you hadn't the one... It would have been rough. No, I mean, it's a it's a huge privilege to be a finalist. I mean, and it's a really fantastic night, and to be a part of it, and you know, the job that Australia Museum does in recognising and celebrating science, it's just mm. it's a really it's a really really great night and a really great great recognition of all the amazing science that's going on in Australia. So to be a part of it was great. But yeah, it was it was a pretty awesome moment when they call your name. Did you write a speech? Did you have a speech? No, prepared? I didn't. A lot of people went up and they'd written speeches, oh, but really? I didn't. I didn't want to be presumptuous. You just wing it. Yeah. How'd that go? <laughs> I think it went all right. I'd like to thank my 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 dog. My dog's been there all the time. She's been there for yeah, me she's the been whole there. time. Yeah. Big part, yeah. If, you, if you want to know who Dr. Laura is, you'll you'll see her sometimes sitting out the front of the the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre with her dog having coffee because they won't let her take the dog into the Doherty Institute. I think. Actually, some, yeah. The easier way to know who Dr. Laura was is she was on the front of the ABC webpage for like three days. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Anyway, we're very very proud, and it's it's interesting uh, that the coincidentally uh, today we have a number of guests coming on from. The Doherty Institute because it's basically around the fifth year since the Institute was established. So we have the director coming in a few minutes. And so it's great that you're in here and you've won the award and that, all things are going great. That today. was really generous of you to time the award with the fifth year anniversary. Yeah. That was well done. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, we'll ask uh, Sharon Lewin, who's coming in the moment, about the, the raise that you've been talking about <laughs> and the, the, bigger, the bigger corner office. And we'll see, uh, we'll see what we can, uh, we can do. I'm sure Let's there's something, it, yeah. something that we can sort out. I want to hear there. more about the Eureka's. I don't know about the after party. <laughs> You know, was, did was Dr. Carl go party? off? What happened? <laughs> what was that? Did Dr. Carl party hard? I want to. Oh, what, what's the science? Don't the mention science that party. person on this show. <laughs> he was there, but yeah, bet. it's a long night. It goes till eleven. Yeah, <laughs> and these are a bunch of scientists. It was way Come past on. everyone's bedtime. Well, I was waiting for a text from you to learn what you know. Following Twitter, just seeing it, and then all of a sudden, I think it was about nine thirty. You sent me some weird drunken photo of an award. Which was, uh, which was pretty cool. It looked pretty cool. It took me a while to work out what exactly the photo was of. So, so did you get like, is it a crystal statue with your name on it or, or does it just say it's outstanding? Not, it's nice. Yeah. It's, it, it's nice. I think it's actually Perspex, but, um, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. But it looks, it looks very nice. It's got my name on it. It wasn't 3D printed at least, <laughs> no. you know. So, it's very attractive. Looking. It looked very nice. It looked yeah, very, very nice in the pictures. Well, congratulations, Laura. We're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we'll be talking to the director of the Doherty Institute all about Laura. No, actually, we're going to talk about other things as well. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple You are listening to 3 Triple Arts. I'm Stoney Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now once again is Professor Sharon Lewin. She's the director of the Doherty Institute and professor of medicine at the University of Melbourne. Sharon, welcome back. It's been about five years. Good to have you here. It's been about five years. Great to be back. Now, we've got you in today because it is the fifth year anniversary of the Doherty Institute, which has gone, I have to say, pretty quickly. Um, I remember when it was being built because I was working across the road in the medical building and we were getting a lot of mice because, you know, when they dig up the, the old parts of Carlton. Oh, yeah. You know, and they were just, well, you get these field mice coming through the building. And they weren't the white mice. They were up on level 10. Right. These were, these were the ones coming out of the, the footing, but it's, um, it's gone quick. So in terms of 
if we go back to the start, what was the reason for building something like the Doherty Institute? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big investment. Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, and it's a good lesson in having a great big idea on sort of in the bottom drawer, ready to pull out when the opportunity mm. arises. And um, the idea for it came from some senior members of the University of Melbourne, um, Jim McCluskey particularly, now the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research, Roy Robbins-Brown, very senior microbiologist at Melbourne Uni, and um, some senior leaders at Royal Melbourne Hospital, Mike Catton, who was head of one of the public health reference labs. And I think um, what the three thought, Mike, Roy and um, Jim, was that we had all this expertise in infection and immunity sort of sprinkled through the University of Melbourne and Royal Melbourne. But if we put them all together and I sort of got a cohesive vision and visibility and fantastic mm. new infrastructure, we could do something really big. And um, infectious diseases, you know, many years ago, you know, talking really in the 70s essentially, most people thought was sort of were gone and we had antibiotics and we wouldn't need to worry, this was a thing of the past. But actually particularly with HIV, and then subsequently over the, the last 40, 50 years, we've seen more and more new infectious diseases. Plus we've also seen more and more impact of immunology um, on all areas of medicine. So both of these areas are incredibly important areas for health and medical research. So the idea of putting everyone together in a, in a co-location, um, name it after someone brilliant, and visible with a huge international reputation who's had an extraordinary impact on both infectious diseases mm. and immunology. And that, of course, is Peter Doherty. And Peter um, agreed to uh, have his name, though he now says that um, he'd be willing to give up his name for $100 million. So if you have a donor <laughs> out there who's going to give us $100 million, uh, Peter has said he will give up that wonderful name. Um, and uh, and at the time of the GFC, uh, the Labor government was interested or well, not interested, were really hoping to drive sort of economic mm. uh, development across the country. So there was money for infrastructure and this was a compelling and important uh, idea with a good plan. And so the federal government committed a significant amount of funds. Uh, the state government, who run a lot of our public health activities and the University of Melbourne together, $210 million that led to the building. And I think it went up in pretty record time. I didn't join until it opened on the 12th of September. And I remember that date because it's actually my birthday. Oh, so every go. day, yep, every that. year that it's the Doherty's birthday, it's actually my birthday as well. So 12th of September is when I started and that was yeah. when, it, when, it, when it opened. But, um, you know, the, the concept to opening was probably about 10 years, which... Um, I think it's a good lesson for, you know, always having a big idea ready to roll yeah. out. You never, you never know when that government money is going to be available and, yeah. you know, sometimes you have to act pretty yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah, So we were really fortunate. And I think the other interesting fact is that we have a um, – so we work mainly on infectious diseases and immunology or infection and immunity. And uh, we have some very specialised high-containment laboratories that you need when you're working with – organisms that um, could cause significant disease. And um, laboratories are classified on the level of security you need. And the highest level is level four, which is when you work with something that uh, we have no treatment for and could kill you. Um, and Ebola, for example, fits mm. into that category. And um, to work with that organism, people need to be pr adequately protected. And for, and that, at the best level, means working essentially in a space suit. So, and yep. that you've got surrounded by positive pressure so that the any contamination gets sort of 
pushed outside away from the person working with the organism. And um, so the Doherty has a level four laboratory for human research, which is the first in the country. Mm. And you may also remember that late 2014 was the time of the really significant West African outbreak of Ebola. So the timing was pretty good. Yeah. So in, in terms of the role of the Institute, I mean, there's obviously a major, you know, fundamental research role. And, you know, Laura's sort of talked to us a bit about some of the work that she does and so forth. But what's the role of the Institute? If, if there was a viral outbreak of some type, yeah. what, what role would the Doherty Institute play in responding to that for Australia? Yeah, so um, sort of three main areas that we work in are research, and obviously we have some you know superb fundamental and applied research happening at the Doherty. Education, uh, we train a lot of um, of undergraduate, postgraduate students, so about 120 PhD students alone at the Doherty, and public health. So um, public health is what you need when you have to respond to an outbreak, mm. and um, and that includes um, diagnosing and detecting whatever the outbreak is, uh, and then responding to it. And so we have a big role in diagnosis and detection because we have specialised laboratories that can, you know, can rapidly roll out existing or new tests or rapidly upscale those tests. The response arm, meaning, you know, what we do as a community is actually really driven by our governments, Mm. both Victorian and federal government. We've got public health in Australia is a little complex because of our federated system. So public health is federated. So the local Victorian government is really responsible for a lot of the response to any sort of outbreak. But if it reaches a significant or national, it's co- there's some coordination amongst the states, but actually the states are quite independent. Mm-hmm. There's a coordinating body led by our chief health officer. And in it, situations of when it's sort of extreme national interest, um, it is dictated by the federal um, government. And so some examples of that are HIV. So when HIV first came along, Local um, governments were doing their own thing, but in the end, a fit, you know, sort of an organising, overarching um, intervention came in. It happens with Ebola. Um, it happened with the big flu response once it reaches mm. a certain scale. So we don't drive that response. That's very right. much government, but we do a lot of research to inform it, and we do a lot of work in the diagnosis and detection, which is critical to plan a response. Yeah, interesting. Now, we're going to take a very short break, Sharon. I'm going to get you to stick around because we're going to continue this conversation in a moment. Let's play some important station announcements, and we'll be right back. Three, triple Uh, you are listening to Triple R. We've got Professor Sharon Lewin in the studio, the director of the Doherty Institute's their five-year anniversary. Sharon, tell us, uh, in the five years, have there been a couple of real big highlights that you're proud of that the Institute's um, managed to achieve, I mean, research or otherwise? What's what's sort of front of mind for you? Um, sure, lots of them. Uh, lots of fantastic uh, research that uh, has been... Uh you know, pretty transformative. Some of the work that um, you mm-hmm. heard about earlier, of course, from Laura and um, others at the Institute working on fundamental immunology, um, which is really shaping the way we understand how important the immune system is in not only infectious diseases, which we've known for a long time, but really critical for cancer response and all the different arms of the immune system that we're getting better and better understanding of and you heard earlier from Laura about resident memory T cells but that's one 
backbone component and then we have other people that work on related T cells. That's also been um, extremely important research. Um, I'm really uh, excited about how we're using genomics in uh, public health. Um, genomics uh, or, you know, understanding the genetic code of um, a person to understand how they respond to a disease is all, has been a big change in medicine. Um, but we can use the same tools, uh, I mean, the genetic code of viruses or bacteria to track them real at, you know, far greater precision, precision that we, than we used to. And so we've had, um, the opportunity to bring the latest in genomics. These, this is work led by Ben Howden and Tim Stinia and, um, Deb Williamson and, uh, others who are bringing these tools in understand the genetic code to public health response. And so how might that work? Well, so when you have a, um outbreak of an infection in a hospital, mm-hmm. we used to use very old-fashioned techniques of, like, literally, you know, following where that person went through the hospital, what board, bed right. they were in, what yep. ward they were in. So it's like a detect, detective work, trying to yeah. work out whether per- patient A transmitted the organism to per- patient B. We knew that the same type of organism we didn't know it was the identical organism and um and we would use these kind of old-fashioned ways to tracking the bug around the hospital well nowadays you just sequence you get the sequence of the bug which can be much cheaper and much quicker and you can very rapidly do your detective work because you can trace the actual bug by its genetic code throughout the hospital so we're using that a lot more both in in uh in public health and uh, there's hospital-acquired infections and transmission of viral infections and transmission of sexually transmitted infections, actually. Again, uh, when you do an outbreak um, follow-up, you ask people who they've had contact with and people tell you most of you know the story, yeah, right. but they may not tell you all of the all story, of it, yeah. which is understandable. But now we can use, and this is work done by Deb Williamson, that she can actually use the genetic code of gonorrhea and syphilis, for example, and you can actually track transmission in communities as well. So we have done um, a lot of work in this area, and I think it's really changing the way we do public health. Mm. And I think genomics will not only have a big impact on how it's we do it public health in Victoria or Australia, but it will be much easier to do this in low-income countries as well because to set up the sorts of systems we have to grow bacteria in the lab and um, test what it, it's sensitive to antibiotic A or antibiotic B, is, for us is low-tech, but actually you need a big infrastructure to do it. To actually do the genetic code, as technologies get better and better, it will be easier and easier. For me, it's a bit like India going... Um, straight to a mobile phone and never having a landline. Mm. I reckon that's what we might see in public health um, in our region, uh, but that's an area that the Doherty is really led, and I think we're only at the beginning of seeing how much impact that can have. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and your area of research um, specifically is around HIV, and I, I know the last time we spoke to you, you, know, you, you ran us through a lot of the details of HIV, but the one thing we didn't talk a lot about was the interaction between HIV and hepatitis, which yeah. you're interested in. I mean, w- what's happening there? Yeah, well, that's actually another very, um, I think, interesting uh, success of the Doherty, meaning that um, we're trying, when you get to pick two uh, groups of people or multiple groups of people that work in similar but related areas, you can get a lot of synergies. So um, as we talked about for HIV, we have great long-term treatment for. Um, people have to be on treatment lifelong. If you stop the um, antivirals, the virus comes straight mm. back up. 
and that's because the virus goes into hiding in certain places and the immune system can't control it when it returns. Well, in hepatitis B, it's almost an identical situation, uh, meaning that and, oh, not, first, a few differences. Um, not everyone needs treatment for hepatitis B. Hepatitis B is the, um, is the virus that all of us are immunised against, um, mm-hmm. and so most of us think hepatitis B isn't a problem, but about 350 million people in the world living with hepatitis B, um, and it's one of the biggest causes of liver cancer and reasons for transplantation. Different hepatitis C that um, we now have a cure for hepatitis C. Right. Still a big cause for liver transplantation and death, but we have a cure for hepatitis C. So hepatitis B, similar to HIV, you need treatment lifelong for. If you stop your treatment, um, the virus comes straight back up. So we have a group of uh, researchers at the Doherty led by Peter Revel, who um, are very interested in um, and very, very active global advocates around we needing a cure for hepatitis B. And their program, which is called ICE Hep B, the International Coalition for the Elimination of Hepatitis B, it's very much modelled on some of the work that I've done on HIV cure with the International AIDS Society. So there's a lot of scientific similarities, how the virus hides, mm. what arm of the immune system you need to respond to it, how you design clinical trials to eliminate the virus that persists. And then added to that, so I think those two areas are very strong areas and they can learn a lot from each other and um, added to that about 10% of people in the world who have HIV also are co-infected with hepatitis B and those two viruses actually do interact um, both within the same cell and by Mm. the effects that HIV has on the immune system. Yeah. Well, it, it's fascinating stuff. And uh, I think it's it's interesting when we look at just how many tools we have these days to combat these things. It gives, I think it gives you an idea of how complex the, the problem is. Because I know we've, we've talked about this before and it seems like we should, you know, we have all these genetic tools and everything now, but, you know, the, these viruses are just so damn good at, at mm. hiding away from us and so damn good at, you know, defeating whatever we throw at them that they, they, Continue, and we've knocked out quite a few, but some of the True. tougher ones are still there. But, but look at hepatitis C. I mean, how incredible uh, is that? So um, hepatitis C only really discovered um, in the early 80s as a, as a mm. virus. Um, it was previously called non-A, non-B, right. meaning it wasn't hepatitis A and it wasn't hepatitis B. But then it was um, um, genetic code and was re- re- was revealed and it got a new name, hepatitis C. And shortly after, you could never grow hepatitis C in the lab. That was the big problem. Um, so you had to use these complicated animal models. And then a breakthrough was made on growing it um, in the lab. And then once you can grow it, then you can start developing drugs. Mm. And actually, many of the, the, the approach to drug discovery for hepatitis C was almost entirely based on how drugs were discovered for HIV. And then now we have these cures for hepatitis C. Eight weeks and 99% of people are cured of hepatitis C. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Mm. Well, Sharon, look, it's fabulous having you back in the studio. Congratulations on the first five years of the Doherty. It sounds like it's doing really well, and it's great to have such a a phenomenal facility here in Australia. And I suspect a lot of people aren't aware that that um, level of biocontainment is... You know, just just down there on the corner of uh, Grattan and Royal Parade. And Can I the, give you one last yeah, fact? Though? Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> because um, it's always good when other people say that you're doing well. But um, there is a uh, Na- the Nature magazine has um, something called the Nature Index, yep. where they rank universities and um, institutes in all different natural sciences, um, physical sciences. And this year, in the Nature Index for medical research institutes, um, there were four 
Australian institutes in the top 100, mm-hmm. um, and that included WeHi, Baltimore Hall Institute, Garvin, and QIMR. And the Doty Institute was wow. in there at number 69. And given that those other institutes are more in the range of 100, 100 years, years old, old. <laughs> I think it's pretty good that we've made the Nature um, Index yeah. uh, uh, this year, which is great. Yeah, look, that's an extraordinary achievement. I think every, everyone should be proud of the fact that we have this here in mm. Melbourne and so many great researchers in it, including Dr. Laura, our very own, or I should say Associate Professor Laura every now and then, just to remind people <laughs> that you're a little better than the rest of us. Um, but uh, congratulations and uh, good luck with the next Five years, and we're going to talk to one of your researchers in just a few minutes about some of the work she's been doing. So thanks for coming in, Sharon. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. We're going to take a break, folks. We'll be back in just a few moments with more science. Three. Triple. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. We've got about 11 minutes left. And in the studio with us is Dr. Fern Coy. She is one of the postdoctoral researchers at the Doherty Institute. Fern, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Oh, look, it's great. It's great to have you in. Um, we've, we've, we've emailed each other over the years for various events and things. Um, but it's, it's good to finally meet you. And, and you're working in an area which, uh, I suppose is just an, Again, another complexity in, in the whole immune system scenario, but a particular type of T cell. So before we get into that, um, Laura's mentioned this a couple of times on the show, but her explanations sometimes go over my head. So what, what, what's a T cell, what's a T cell doing in the body? A T cell is a type of white blood cell mm-hmm. that sees foreign things. So we have our own cells and we need these kind of specialized immune cells to see that something's wrong in the body. So they see specialized signatures of, say, bacteria or viruses or even your own body doing the wrong thing. They mm-hmm. see that as like a danger signal and they proceed to sort of recognize an attack, okay. form a plan and attack. Okay. And do they, do they, so do the T cells themselves do the attacking or do they signal to other cells to get on board? So that's the complexity there. They right. do a bit of everything. I like yeah. to think so. They signal, they, some of them attack, some of them signal, some of them just help. We call them helper cells as well. So there's a whole sort of, plethora of all these subsets to be sort of to be to be investigated and what are, are they all white blood cells and just have different functions and subsets or are they different types of cells as well the, um the ones that we're interested in the ones that i actually study they're all pretty much white blood cells and what's the t stand for thymus oh there you go <laughs> I've, never, I've always wondered that was right? everyone just goes t cells t cells yeah. yeah exactly and we know of t cells and b cells and b cells are the ones that produce antibodies and uh, b i think stands for bone marrow because that's where they come from and um t cells come from the thymus oh very cool very cool now you work on a very particular type of cell which has the amazing australian name which i'm not sure if that's where it came it's called mate cells it. <laughs> and, it, and it obviously stands for something what, what's a mate cell MATE stands for M-A-I-T, actually, not M-A-T-E, stands yeah. for mucosal associated invariant T-cell. Okay. So no one likes to say that out loud. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. yeah. And, and so what, what's particular about these cells that is of interest? Uh, well, that was a great segue before this because um, I can actually – um, throughout Laura's story out there, she's focused on one type of T cell that's mm-hmm. sort of patrolling the body. We recently only learned about mate cells. Um, we kind of built our discovery based on things people already know. Yep. So T cells like to see proteins and lipids, but this specialized subset of mate cells, they like to see bacteria's vitamin B signatures. Okay. So we, we talk about vitamin B, um, when we say, you know, we should take folate or vitamin B supplements in our daily you know, daily vitamin intake. But we don't know. I mean, now we know that bacteria also has their own riboflavin signatures, their own vitamin B 
producing pathways, and we have specialized cells in our body that can see that as being foreign and dangerous to us. So these T cells see those bacteria and they form an attack. So you're telling me that the mate cells are good at finding the vitamin B that you get from Vegemite. That's a good one, so they can see it. <laughs> I think that I like my think, biological yeah. contribution. I don't like Vegemite, so I like to think that too. Oh, that's bad. Uh, so let me, let me get straight. So when, when mm-hmm. bacteria comes into the body, are you saying that it, it, it is producing vitamin B, like expelling it somehow, and our T cells are, are seeing that and, and working out that that's therefore that vitamin B is coming specifically from bacteria, not from another source, and therefore problem? Is that how it's working? To put it sort of... In a simple, um, I like to, um, I like to think of it as the bacteria s- synthesizing pathway is different from what we um, eat in, oh, a, in, okay. our, in our food. Yep. Yep. So that's what they're seeing. The bacteria is actually making their own sort of vitamin, and not all bacteria actually. Only some bacteria need this. So mate cells can only see the ones that are that are doing this. Yeah, and if we if we didn't have the mate cells, what would happen? Would that bacteria be invisible to? to our system or would it just take longer to kind of pick up that something was going on? My favorite part about the immune system is actually, I think there is a lot of redundancy mm-hmm. that protects us from these bacteria. So these bacteria would have the vitamin B pathway, but they will also have their cell wall and the proteins and the lipids that they're also using mm. to be, um, to survive. So I like to think that the immune system would be capable of seeing how yeah. the T cells or B cells be capable of seeing this and form an attack. But with the vitamin B, that's an extra signal or put, perhaps the mate cells will be better at combating these viruses uh, or sorry, these bacteria. And, um, yeah. It's, um, yeah it and, and so in, in the in the actual lab, I mean, what, what does this look like? I mean, how do you do these things look different? Like, do mate cells look different to other T cells, or is, or do you have to do this by the, the chemical signatures that they sort of put out? How do you how do you find them? Short answer: No, they don't look different under the microscope. But um, the way we try and detect them is different. So we use different tools. So that we, we try and go, we, all T-cells have a T-cell receptor, and the way that you look for that T-cell receptor is different on a mate cell compared to some other T-cells. Yeah. And, and in terms of the... Oh, sorry. So the mate cells, you said they were only recently discovered for, I assume, the scale of understanding the immune system. Yes. Part of that is because they don't look the same. Yes. But recently discovered how many years? How long is 2012? Okay. So, <laughs> but that's just amazing that, that we're still finding out things about our immune system in exactly. 2012 about how it works. That's, that's always fascinating. Been there. And yeah. we're going to continue to do that. Say the cells that I worked, work on were only really discovered in 2009. So, you know, and now mate cells were confused into, you know, the sorts of cells that I kind of worked on. And I reckon we'll be splitting that apart again. So there's always there's such complexity in the immune system. I think there's so much that we don't understand and new cell types to find. Yeah. Mm. And you can't just use one tool and try and pick all of them out. That's what that's what we're trying to do. So my other naive question. So is there a likely of another T cell sitting there looking for bacteria that don't extrude vitamin B through a pathway? Someone out there is trying to publish a nature paper. Definitely about different type of T cell. Okay. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's phenomenal just how complicated this is. And you, you mentioned the issue of redundancy. How do we go about, so we know, we know these mate cells exist and we know some of, you know, Laura's other T cells exist and so forth. How do we go about beefing up the immune system to, you know, say, say for example, in cancer immunotherapy, when you're trying to get the immune system to start attacking cancer cells again, or in other areas, do we beef up the sort of, the, the potency of the tech, or do we are we able to beef up this sort of redundancy you speak of? I mean, what what's the strategy that you you go after? I think I'm getting out of my um, sort of realm a little bit by beefing it up, but 
we, what Laura and I are trying to do with our specialized T cells, we're actually feeding into this whole idea of the immune system, um, combating cancer. But in a day, daily sort of work, flow kind of view, point of view, I would focus on my sort of T-cell and mm-hmm. trying to work out what gene would sort of increase the numbers or function and seeing if that, you know, if you throw that cell type into a model of disease, if that helps. Yeah. So in terms of a translational point of view, the Doherty actually is very, very strong in it and I see that every day, but you can't do everything. Yeah. So in yeah. my daily workflow, I kind of really try and focus on switching on or off um, these T cells that we're interested in. Yeah, is, is there any um, negative to these T cells existing? Is there ever a scenario where you know if someone like there's many autoimmune diseases? Yes. Uh, are there scenarios where these particular mate cells say, "Hang on a minute, I'm going to attack part of the body because I don't know what I'm doing anymore"? Yes, is that-, that very well might be. Mm. We we published a review um, recently in Asia Reviews Immunology and. Um, no one really knows just yet because they're so new, and mm. I put new in inverted commas. Yeah. Um, we've, people are just starting to use these tools that the University of Melbourne team has developed to then see what these cells are doing in a different disease settings. And we are, tr- we are starting to see that in some diseases they help, in some diseases they actually do um, a bit of harm. Yeah, because there's so many autoimmune diseases where we just don't really know what the, the cause is. And I noticed in, um, in the material that was sent through that I've never heard diabetes described as an autoimmune disease before. Is that, is that true? Is, is, is diabetes an, an auto, a, a disease of the immune system? Yeah, T-cells certainly have a role. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think attacking that. the pancreas. Yeah. It? Yeah, because that's not something I'd, I'd, I'd heard before. Because I always thought it was just an insulin deficiency scenario. But, um, but yeah, if I mean, these pathways of immune response being possible ways to deal with things like diabetes and cancer. I mean, are there any diseases that we can't fix with the immune system, or? Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> certainly um, T cells can attack the islets in the pancreas, and mm. um, certainly, sort of all these cell types. Really, what it's all about is that it's bringing all the immunologists together and all the different cell types that they work on in all the ranges, whether it's autoimmunity, infection, and cancer, and that kind of crosstalk, and um, and that's really kind of what the Doherty Institute's done. Actually, there are researchers like Fern and myself working on different cell types. Obviously, there's a bit of banter that mm. my cell type's more important than your cell oh. type. But at the end of the day, it's bringing all these uh, researchers together and kind of trying to boost the immune system as a whole and working out how these cell types help each other out. Yeah. Well, Fern, thanks so much for coming and chatting to us. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And as, as we say, every, every couple of years, there seems to be more and more. And I I remember being, you know, I've been on this show for 27 years and I remember like, 10, 15 years ago, people just weren't talking about the immune system. There were probably only two cell types. Yeah, people just weren't talking about it as a, as a process for combating other, other things like cancer and so forth. And in the last 10 years, I think, you know, neuroscience and immunology of the two areas have just exploded. Laura, just quickly, there's an event on, a there public is. event. To celebrate the five-year anniversary of the Doherty, there's a public lecture at 6 p.m. at the Doherty Institute on pandemics, pathogens, and the environment, understanding threats to our health. So what, what 6 p.m. what day? Tomorrow? 6 p.m. on Monday the 9th of September. Oh, Monday week. Monday it's actually week. at the convention, convention center. center. So oh, it's at huge. the convention it's center. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be place. huge. Peter going to be there. Yeah. There you go. Are you going to be there, Fern? I'm going to be there. I'm on a wait list. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, uh, thanks, Fern, for, for coming in, and, and good luck Thank with you. your ongoing research. It's really fascinating stuff. Thank so you. maybe we can check in with you in a few years and see what uh, other cell types have crept out of the, out of the uh, Petri dish yeah, with, with all of you. Yeah. Um, folks, we're going to say goodbye and hand you over to the team from Eat It, uh, Dr. Linden, Dr. Laura, Dr. Ray. Thanks so much for being on the show. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed from her phone. She's having computer problems, uh, but she's still tweeting at the rate of knots. I'm Dr. Shane. Until next week, have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere, and please stay tuned now for Eat It. Hi. 
This is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.